Howdy folks, welcome to our podcast, American Cowboy in New Zealand. This is Ben Longwell with True West Horsemanship. We're glad you're here. Join us as we share stories and adventures and interview extraordinary men and women in the equine and ranching industries to gain insight into horsemanship and life itself. It is our mission to help people and their horses better understand one another and achieve together that which they cannot do individually. Thanks for riding along with us. All right, guys. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. This is part two of my conversation with Jeremiah Watt. So if you haven't listened to our previous episode, make sure you catch that first part one of my conversation and the great stories and history that Jeremiah was sharing of his adventures in life. And then we got our shop up and running and started building saddles. Um, There's some odd things in life that um, my, my whole life, seems to be sort of uh, accidental meetings with people where you meet them, you like them, you enjoy each other's company and they remember, right? And, yeah. and I remember too. And they have something happens and they call you and want you to be part of something they're doing. And that's kind of my whole life seems to be that way. Uh, I'm thankful for it. Um, so <clears throat> we, being Canadian, we, of course, would like to become citizens. Well, <laughs> going to say something ain't going to be too popular. The woke crowd might be upset with me. But I have sat in the immigration office, and I have been told to my face, and my wife did too, it'd be so much easier if you guys had nothing you didn't, didn't know how to do anything. So we could train you to be a plumber or electrician or a backhoe operator or whatever. Uh, it would be great if you didn't speak English because we could put you through school to learn to speak English. Um, but you insist that you can supply your own job. Just get out of my way. Yeah, That's my attitude. Get out of my way. I'll make it myself. I don't need your help. Fine. Yeah. I appreciate it, but I don't need your help. Yeah. And that was a very, very big roadblock for us. So we had to start doing some things that I, uh, it's certainly not, wouldn't be my choice to go do this for a living. Uh, it, I had to come down here. I had to qualify as an artist. In order to do that, you have to be in galleries sell things in galleries, go to gallery shows, all that kind of stuff, which is all fine if that is where your interest is. But yeah. mine was just getting to another branding and building another nice saddle. Yeah. So sort of stop here when I opened my shop in California first after Nevada. I had to start becoming a jeweler, building buckles and necklaces and bolo ties and stuff like that in order to put it in a gallery and have it sell. Right. So <clears throat> I've done that for, I don't know, three or four years. Right. Uh, and I had a saddle shop. I built lots of saddles when I was there in uh, Panoch was the actual little community. It was just a bar really. Um, Hang on it is also where Last year, I can get my wife on them rabbit ears. 
There. Ben, if that helped. Yeah. There you are. I lost you for a little bit. I can get my wife up on the roof and move the rabbit ears. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So you were saying um, you had gotten into doing, you had to get uh, certified as a, or uh, recognized as an artist and doing your jeweler stuff and making buckles and stuff like that for three or four years. Yeah, that was in order to obtain a chance to go through the immigration process and get a landed immigrant visa. Okay. Right. So we we done that. But in the meantime, uh, up until now, everything I had done or would do was custom. And <clears throat> you would call up and you want to buy something, and I'd ask you what you want, and we'd go out and build it. Okay. Right. Well, <clears throat> Brian had said to me, man, I wish somebody would build one of these snaffle bits so when you got to get bucked off and land at the end of a cotty rope, you don't bend the ring all out of shape on these egg butt snaffles. And I said, well, I think I can build one of them out of steel and you might still get bucked off and you may still land out there at the end of the Makati rope, but the horse is going to drag you without bending the ring, I think. Well, let me see one. So I went home and I built one, okay? Took it over and I gave it to him and he used it and liked it and all that kind of stuff. Well, it didn't take too long and Ray and Caroline at the time, uh, came to the house and he said, Hey, I'd like to get six of them. I said, okay, we'll build you six of them. Well, six turned into 12, turned into 24, turned into 36, turned into another 36, another 36. So it, it really was the impetus to change our business life. So a couple things, of course, in the beginning, you can, keep up to all this stuff yourself, right? Your, your wife gets your supper ready and, and uh, she comes out and helps do some of the grinding with you in the evenings. And, you know, you tell her how cool it is. You get to share the new ZZ Top album together and not everybody gets that. <laughs> so all of that is fine and handy for a while, but there's a point where you can't really keep up and get over and work on a handmade bit, which you have sitting on a or as an order or over in the other shop and get a saddle made. Yeah. So I, I hired my first employee, which is a, a nightmare in and of itself in the state of California. Um, and my employee was my cousin who was a bootmaker who's from Canada. <laughs> There's a little bit of Arkansas relatives going on here. Right. So anyways, he had just got divorced. He was living down the Canyon from us. In, in a little old trailer and building boots. And I would say mentally he was struggling. Okay. <clears throat> he wasn't ready to commit sideways or nothing, but he was not in a good spot, not happy, not a lot of things. Yeah. Before he went to boot making school, he was a certified pipeline welder. So he could weld way better than I can. So I said, Hey, Bill, perfect. When you're done working on boots at the end of the day or middle of the day or first thing in the morning, you're sick and tired because the toe box didn't go in the way you want it to, come on over. I'll put you to work working on these snaffle bits, okay? Well, that grew into other things because, well, now we're actually a little ahead, right? We got some extra snaffles ahead. We went to a birthday party for Tom Dorrance. All right. While we're there... One of the fun little things 
I'll, I'll make sure I touch on it later. I got to meet, of course, Ray before I moved into California. I'd heard about Tom, but never met him. And I had only really vaguely heard about Bill. But I got invited over to their place, so I'd meet all three at one time. But wow. this opportunity, now we're going up to Merced or Modesto for Tom Dorrance's 80th or 81st or something birthday. Well, while I'm there, up comes a guy. Uh, his name is Pat Pirelli. I hope I can say that without um, doing something wrong. But anyways, uh, <laughs> he said, hey, I see them snaffle bits you're building for, for Ray. They're pretty dang nice. I said, well, thank you. That's the first time I met him. He said, I want you to build some snaffle bits for me. I said, okay. What do you want me to build? I don't want the same thing as Ray. He said, yeah, okay, because I wouldn't build you one for that. Because at that point, Ray was my only, my, my customer, okay? So he says, uh, I like a loose ring snaffle. Build something for me. I said, okay, I'll send you a couple of samples. and You can try them out and tell me if you like them or don't like them, whatever. So that's what we've done. <clears throat> so within, I don't know, three months, I'm sending twice as many snaffle bits to Pat as to Ray. And that, it just the way that it all worked out. So now my cousin had swamped and we actually hire another kid from down the road. He's 16 and, you know, kind of didn't like school like me. So we have him employed in a very technical job. We had a, we're in an old uh, ranch mechanic shop. All right. And in this shop is a, do you remember when they used to have those kind of four-legged things come up out of the ground hydraulically to pick your vehicles up? Yeah. You ever remember seeing that? Okay, so this is an old one, and it goes right down into the ground, and just the steel frame is sticking above the ground. And it's a big, heavy one because they would lift like two, three-ton trucks with this thing and tractors or whatever. <clears throat> anyway, so we have our ring mandrel mounted on one of these four legs for this hoist. And this kid's job is to take a 10 foot piece, walk backwards around the ring mandrel and bend our rings for us <laughs> all day long. <laughs> <laughs> when I, when I tell people that and mentally the image that goes through my mind is that donkey that walks around and around at the sugar mill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they make that guy go forward and they blindfold him. We had our guy go backwards without the blindfold. Anyways, so he worked for us and built rings until we figured out there was other ways to do things. And this is kind of the, the journey, uh, especially if you get off in an avenue like we did, where now we're, we're actually entertaining the thought of doing this a little more commercially. Okay. So I actually stopped that next year, 88, I guess it was. Uh, I completely closed my order books. No more bits and spurs. I haven't opened it since. Now, I still do build some silver-mounted bits and spurs, but I build them when I get time. I build them however I want to build them, right? Yeah. I don't write a person's name down. I don't take down a list of how they like this mouthpiece, that mouthpiece. I just build what I want, and I fortunately, I get a sold when I get a sold. So <clears throat> we really did in 88, make a transition from being a custom shop. We still had our custom saddles, but we began the bit shop 
into more of a commercial enterprise. And with my cousin's help as a welder and done a lot of grinding. So what it does there is it opens up the, uh, you have to open yourself up to other methods and manners of building something. And in some cases, it violates this sort of quote unquote cowboy ethic, right? And I find myself walking on both sides of this line almost to this day. And I don't want to say it like once you cross over, you know, you're the son of Beelzebub. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about some of your best friends who build stuff one at a time. They look at what I do and think, oh God, what, what happened to Jeremiah? You know, because I'll make, they'll make a snaffle bit this week. And we'll make in a week uh, close to 600. And at the end, I will gladly lay my snap a bit right next to his, and it'll be at least equal and finish. So, and, and that's what has to happen. If you're going to step away from the custom side and avail yourself of the more commercial side, yeah. you have to look at different ways and methods and manners of building stuff. So, yeah. That has really changed our, not our focus, because our focus is still on the people like you that are out there doing this for a living. Yeah. I haven't suddenly switched to all Western horse or Western pleasure riders or, or rainers. I've, I've stuck with what is in my heart, which is the guys out in the sagebrush. And I'm still building what I would call West Coast, uh, very functional spade bits for people who just can't afford the silver mounted one yet. Okay. I'm just like everybody else. I don't think you can put too much silver in a horse's or on horse's head, unless he just can't see past everything. That's when you have to cut it back a little bit. Okay? <laughs> I, like, I like a pretty head stall. I like a silver bit just like everybody else, but there is a place for that person who can't afford today a nice handmade spade bit by a guy like Bruce Hainer or somebody like that. Uh, there's bunches of good bit makers out there right now. So this is a bit that is sorry, but way better than buying a Mexican alternative. I'm picking on the Mexican bits in particular here because they don't function as they should. Yes, they got silver on them already, but they don't function like you want the spade bit to function. So <clears throat> that's the niche that we worked our, our way towards. Now, I'm a saddle maker. I have developed a little bit and spur company. We market as Jeremiah Watt Products. I'm now going to wholesale shows opening accounts, making cold calls, getting stores to buy a dozen of something. It's, it's totally changed mine and my wife's life. We interact with people different because up until 88, we always talked to the guy that wrote in and called us from a phone booth at the bar, right? And he wants to order us out. Now we're calling stores, introducing ourselves and trying to sell them a dozen snaffle bits, right? Or in this the first few years of business, we had black iron spurs, more or less um, kind of Southwest 
maybe even a little bit arena, definitely arena style, swinging buttons, all that kind of stuff. And we had little black iron bits. That's what we started out with. Of course, today is altogether different. The, the advent of the mass-produced product from China pretty much gutted the, especially the black iron spurs because I can find you a dozen places to buy them for under $20 a pair every day of the week. Okay? Yeah. So if, if, excuse me, but if you get to build bits and spurs and do it in California, you're not going to be able to do them for 20 bucks a pair. Sorry. Even the Mexicans can't keep up. So it gutted that part of our business and left us looking at what we have employees. We don't want to lose them. What do we do in order to, uh, use their time and their skills and the machinery we now have in the shop, right? right? So we, one of the little things as a saddle maker, since I started at Chuck's, I had been using one guy's hardware. He's still my friend. I still call him a friend. But his hardware is crooked. Okay? He's a wonderful guy, but his hardware is crooked, meaning that you would typically build a saddle, you fit everything on this left side of the saddle, you flip it over and you make a copy of that one for the right side, okay? But when you're using his hardware, you can't do that because the holes won't line up when you flip it over. The hardware won't line up, all that kind of stuff. It was driving me nuts. The other thing was you build a guy at that time, you know, this is 88, 89, 90. You build a guy a seven, eight, $9,000 saddle and you put, honest to God, everybody done it. A 49 cent roller buckle for the flank cinch, which in six months was doing an honest impression of a KitchenAid on the back billets on this guy's saddle, right? Just cutting the hell out of the back billets, this terrible rollers, all that kind of stuff. So one day I'm sitting there talking to my wife and I'm complaining as my usual. And she says, Well, look it, you can build bits and spurs, you can build a saddle. Why can't you build a flank buckle? And I'm thinking, yeah, why can't I build a flank buckle? Why the heck can't I? And for that matter, she says, you could actually build some straight hardware. My yeah. wife doesn't usually talk to me that. She had been drinking. No, she doesn't drink at all. <laughs> so the next day, I call my friend who had been buying hardware from, and I said, uh, why don't you make a new match plate for your hardware? So you can get the hole straight. Okay. Why would I want to do that? I said, well, look, if you won't do it the following day, I'm going to be in the hardware business. Well, whatever, go build hardware. If you think it's so easy. I said, look, I'm not warning you. I'm just telling you, all you got to do is buy a new match plate for your, in your foundry. Costs you $2,000 and you can straighten all the problems with your hardware out. Okay. Nope. I'm not doing it. I said, look, I'll tell you one last time, but tomorrow I will be in the hardware business. That's what I had determined. Okay. Yeah. So he said no for the third time. I said, okay. So we hung up. Oh, I still love him. He went his way. I went my way. <laughs> the next day we started in the hardware business, quite literally working through different contacts we had made in the bit and spur deal, trying to figure out a way to put this together, make it straight, make it accurate, make it easy enough to finish, make it out of some different materials, all that kind of stuff. 
So we quite literally did start right into the hardware business. We made a trip to LA and spent some hard-earned cash to get some, some tooling made. And we were rocking and rolling. And like everything, you are, it's kind of like ranching. The, uh, a modern family ranch. You're busy as heck with branding. And then you get everything turned out. And then you got like two weeks to get all the haying equipment greased and ready. And then you're busy haying, right? And you've got breakdowns to get it all repaired and all that kind of crap. And then you got about two weeks to get all the home fences fixed so you can bring the cattle out of the BLM, the high country, back down to the headquarters. And then you got like what, three weeks till Thanksgiving and then you start feeding too. So it's a lot the same in, in my business. There are times of the year when you are slow and you're thinking, man, what am I going to do in order to keep my employees here and paid? I need something to sell in order to make that happen. So <clears throat> we began looking at, because the, the cycle in the saddle shop, it relates to how we handle our cattle, right? My customers don't have time to come and see me when they're branding. They don't have time to come and see me when they're haying or if they're out with the wagon. They don't have time while they're getting the cattle gathered back. They got about three weeks in the winter. And if the bar is open, they may not have full three weeks to come and see me. <laughs> so, so your saddle order is kind of like all at once you get a bunch of orders and then nothing. And then all at once a bunch of orders and the same thing with the hardware business. Every saddle maker gets a bunch of saddles ordered. Well, now we all got to have hardware. Right. So there were these little kind of slow spots in a year. There'd be like a month, a month and a half. Right. You got to fill them in. So we decided to start making tools because I'd go out to my shop and I, I got very lucky when I was traveling around with Pedro, uh, we drove a little north road out of Billings, Montana. You may not be familiar with this book, After Barbed Wire. I'm not sure you ever heard of it before. Okay, so in that are a bunch of images from that northern, northeastern Montana. And then Bank Langmore, who sort of done the first big-time coffee table kind of cowboy book, he photographed this, what they call the Jersey Lily Cafe in this little, I'm going to call it a town called Engamar, Montana. So we made specifically a trip over there, Pedro and I, in order to go through Engamar, Montana and see what it's all about. And then I went over to Miles City to what is Miles City Saddlery. Well, I ended up becoming a, a good friend with Carl and Frida, who owned Miles City Saddlery at the time. So when Carl passed away, Frida called me and said, why don't you come down here and just load up everything of Carl's, it's tools, saddle oriented, and take it back to Canada. So I, as a saddle maker, I got extremely lucky wow. in having three benches full of tools, sewing machines, stitch horses, I mean, everything, right? Wow. We have a, we have a saying, and it's changed now. Don King is one who was the reason for this change. But we used to say it's the womb, the tomb, or the altar is how you get a set of tools. And that quite literally, that was how it was before Don King 
put together the first leather show that I think I'd ever heard of, and it took place, still takes place in, in uh, Sherrod, Wyoming. Well, because of that, and it gathered a lot of saddle makers and other kind of interests too, all in one area, of course, tool makers sprout out. It's like adding water to dirt. Something's going to grow, right? And out of that came several tool makers, and I'm one of them. I went there with hardware first and ended up deciding to build some tools. It had always aggravated me that if I wanted a pair of cantle pliers, nobody makes them. If I wanted a patent leather compass, nobody makes them. It'd be easier to find a dodo bird. So part of that was like, well, what the heck? We still have saddle makers. Why can't we start making them? So we started making literally all of the tools for Now, we aim specifically at the saddle industry. Today, I would say, being honest with you, that's kind of a mistake. I know nothing about the purse business. I know nothing about making belts because all of my pants stay up with binder twine. So I don't know anything about that part. I just build saddles. Okay, I'm kind of one track when it comes to that. So the reason I mention that is all the hardware we built in the beginning was everything was aimed at a saddle. The tools we started off making, the hammers, the pliers, the punches, all that kind of stuff are all aimed at the people building saddles. Right. And today... That needs to be, and it is, we're slowly doing that. We're changing things up so that we address the, and then they're not even necessarily hobbyists. They're, they're people making a full-time living making handbags or whatever, belts. Yeah. And they make better living than us guys building saddles. So <clears throat> we are busy changing, keeping up with the time, so to speak. But we added the tools to fill in gaps that we felt were in place with the bit and spur business and with the hardware business. So we do all of that. Um, in the very first sentence, before I mentioned the book of Genesis, I told you I went to school with, to saddle making school with my brother, Bill. That's right. So about, I'm, I'm guessing, but I'm going to say probably maybe almost 20 years ago now, yeah, about that. Bill went back to Canada and never did go back to saddle making. He went straight back into logging and had himself a drinking problem. I can put it that way. Pretty serious one. So I talked to him one time and I said, why don't you come on down here? The only rule is any smokes. Okay. So two rules, no smoking in the saddle shop, and no drinking while you're here, okay? And I had a tree ready for him. Come on down, build a saddle, we'll have a visit, whatever. So he did. <clears throat> he stayed for, I think, three months, something like that. And he actually built two saddles, done good. Never really had a big fight with the whole uh, alcohol thing at all. So we ship him home and... I expected he would go right back to drinking, but he didn't. So I don't know, another three or four months went by. Uh, and he said, Hey, you need any help down there? I said, yeah, I got a couple extra trees. Why don't you come on down and we'll build another couple of saddles. So he came down again and hadn't drank while he's at home. Wasn't drinking while he was here with us. Uh, we could have company over and people could have beer, a glass of wine. It didn't seem to, you know, really bother them, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so anyways, 
before he went home the second time, I said, you know, at that point, we were running a little over seven years backlog on saddles. And it is, it is wonderful on one hand, but it's, it's, um, it's a burden. Pleasurably, it, it's a burden on the other hand, because yeah. you never really have time to go do something that you just want to do. I, I do that with the tools. We've got to go over and work on some new tooling for this or that. So I'm out of the shop and doing that. But as soon as I get back to the saddle shop, I have a description of what somebody's expecting me to build. Okay. <clears throat> so you are being creative in one, on one hand, every time you're building a saddle, but you don't get to try something new. Yeah. Right? So well, not very often because you have a whole list of people that are waiting on a rough out or a basket stamp or a full flower and conchos on it, no conchos on it, all that kind of stuff. So I told my brother, I said, there are a lot of people who call here wanting a saddle, a plain old rough out. They just want a good tree, good leather, well-made, something I can go punch cows in. And they don't want to wait seven years. Okay. So I said, look, I will start a business with you. We call it Watt Brothers. I'll build a tree. We use the same leather all the same uh, raw materials, okay? I define what the saddle looks like, I mean, according to what the customer is looking for. We limit the options that the customer can have. For instance, you can't have full alligator inlaid seat. You can't have uh, a full horn cap, cannel concho, saddle silver, stirrup bolts. We're just going to limit it. You can have rough out, basket stamp, half breeds, whatever kind of half breed you want, and up to a 3X uh, floral card job, okay? You can have a padded seat, but just not anything but shaft leather and buck rolls and a rig ready to ride, okay? Yeah, yeah. We thought, well, we'll see how that works. Well, heck, within six months, it's way over my brother's head. There's no way you keep up. And so I had went through my order book, and I called people. I said, hey, the choice is yours, right? My brother's going to build them. Here's what happens. I build a tree. We brought a hider right here at the house, same as I would on your tree the, for the handmade saddle up there, and use the same Herman Oak leather and same sheepskin, all, all the same stuff. It's just my brother's going to make it, and you get it in about a year. Hey, yeah, sign me up. I want that one, okay? So quite a few, not all, but quite a few rough outs and half breeds and full basket stamps all went that way. Yeah. Well, in a matter of a couple months, you went from having a couple of saddles to make to a full year's worth of work, like get your butt up into the, at the bench and get to it. Right. Yeah. So it quickly swamped my brother. So I went through having probably three different saddle makers work for me that I know as, as friends. Fortunately, they're still all my friends. Uh, and one of them still works for me to this day. Um, now, fast forward up until I think three years ago, my brother in Canada came down with lung cancer. And we actually thought we were going to lose him. The odds were not in his favor, uh, which to me proves there is a God above. He's still with us. But as a result, I think it might be his age, might be the smoking. I, I don't know. Could be the drinking, but his hands are shaking so bad that there's no way he can run a swivel knife and carve and all that kind of stuff for our saddles. Yeah. 
So he, he is out and we are winding down the end of the Watt Brother saddles. And I quit taking saddle orders now uh, a little low, I think a little over four years ago now. And I still have about a year's, maybe a little over worth of saddles left. I'm still going to build saddles, but I'm going to build what I want. And I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to say that I'm going to build things that you go in a gallery. I'm not saying that. I'm just going to build what I want when I have time and I can go out there just to enjoy it. Yeah. Um, I'll confess to you today, I was out in the saddle shop and I'm working on a, a pretty fancy saddle, probably the second prettiest, fanciest saddle I've ever worked on. And I am sewing the little hobble straps that go around my stirrup leathers and all that. And they're out of dark leather. I can't see to sew them. I can't see my stitch marks. Can't do it. I put light on, four pair of glasses. I just can't get close enough. So it's not like I have to find my piano with a white cane, but I can already tell that uh, I haven't bumped into any door frames lately either. So, uh, but I can places where I just can't see the line. Like I'll trace my pattern on my floral pattern and I'm looking at it thinking, did I even trace it on there? Right. Right. So I, I don't know, to me, people ask me, well, what the heck am I? You're going to quit so soon. Lots of people go till they're 90. Well, that's true. But maybe those parts that you need held up. You know what I mean? <laughs> you can't keep yeah. running. Failure. And you can't keep carving if you can't see the pattern on the leather. You know, yeah. if you have to drag it up and drag it, draw it on there with a black magic marker, you kind of lost the battle. <laughs> so, fortunately, I can still see to engrave. Uh, I have a nice microscope, and I engrave for a company over in, in – I, I teach engraving for a company in Kansas, GRS. Uh, I really like working for them people. But I can tell – there's going to be a day where I won't be blind. I just can't see that little detail like I need to see it. So I think a year or so is safe. I'm praying that I get through that year. And I want to put on my rubber pants and go ride my bicycle some more, too. So uh, there's well, other places in the world that yeah. I would love to see. You know, I, uh, I, I was going to ask you about that because, man, what a... Well, you and I met. Sorry. I say I think that's actually where you and I first spoke was through Instagram, and you made a comment about some post from when I was traveling, and I think that's where we first were first actually interacted was when I was cycling somewhere. It might have been. It sure might have been. I can't recall now. It's it's been quite a number of years ago. Um, I just want to say, man, what an amazing story about, well, I mean, just taking the bull by the horns and, and hitting the road and traveling like you did. And then I think you're right. The, the networking and, and meeting people and having those yeah. shared circumstances and uh, yeah, that is just such a very, very cool history. But tell us, how did you get into the cycling? Because I know you've traveled a lot of different places in the world and, and you, and you do some pretty serious bicycling. So, so how did that sort of start to fit in, in, into this whole adventure? Do I really have to tell you how fat I was? 
<laughs> okay. So, as God is my witness, and I wouldn't lie because I want to get myself into heaven. <laughs> I'm in Panoch. I had, I, I was probably weighing around 245 pounds, which doesn't take me very long. Like three boxes of donuts, I'm there, dude. I'm a perfect heavyweight. So my wife drives in one day in the pickup truck, and in the back, I can see a handlebar for a bicycle sticking up in the back of my truck. I don't own a bicycle. So I walk out of the shop. It's the summertime. I'm looking at the big double doors in this garage kind of workshop at the ranch where we were living. Anyways, I said, wouldn't you find a bike on the side of the road, Mom? No, she said, I bought the bike for you, fatso. I said, you got to be kidding. You bought me a bicycle? <laughs> so I go over and it's a brand new bike from Kmart, a Huffy, uh, which is the cheapest bike ever made in China. Okay? <laughs> and uh, So anyways, <clears throat> I'm living in Pinoch, so I would cycle, started cycling around this block that kind of went around a portion of the ranch that gave me about five miles or six miles, whatever it was. And I could, I could go see my neighbors and they would all scratch their head and wonder what the hell happened to Joe. <laughs> He's out there riding a bike. Did you see him, Grace? He's out there. So anyways, that's kind of where it started. Um, I, I liked the fact that I could, if, if you go, for me, if I'm going to get horseback, I want something to go do. I'm not a happy camper if I'm just going to go lope circles in the arena. That's for somebody else, but it's not for me, right? Yeah. If yeah. there's no guns involved, there's no fighting involved, there's no roping involved, I'm going to stay in the shop, okay? That, that's my mentality. So <clears throat> anyways, the bicycle gave me a chance to be out, get a, a good workout at first. You don't have to go very far when you're 245 pounds, you've got a good workout. <laughs> Sometimes just, just getting the bike out of the garage was enough. <laughs> Anyways, so <clears throat> this carried on. In the meantime, we made a move. We moved from Panoch down here to Kalinga. We're not in town of Kalinga. We're 20 miles west of Kalinga on Highway 198. Uh, I enjoyed it. And my, my wife or my kids, I can't remember who was first, said, well, Dad, why don't you go for like a long ride? Where am I going to go? I don't know. Go go wherever, you know, go across America. Well, what the hell? Who goes across America for no good reason, right? <laughs> so the more I thought about it, the more intriguing it was to me. Could I actually do it, right? So anyways, I rode for here in Pouch or in Colinga. Uh, I rode for another couple of years. I bought a better bike and I, I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, I had dropped a lot of weight. I mean, when I finally decided I'm going to ride across America just to see if I could do it, I think I weighed uh, 200 pounds at the time, which is only five pounds heavier than when I was born. So I was doing really good. <laughs> so I left here on uh, our anniversary, which is August the 2nd, and or seventh, second, seventh, one, one of them days in there. So anyways, drove over to the coast in California here in, in uh, hell was the name of that town. Can't even think of the name of the beach. I go to the ocean so often. Anyways, started there. I rode 
across to the East Coast. I didn't take any. You can buy bike maps that take you down certain roads, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I just kind of picked where I wanted to go according to how bad the traffic was when I got there. Yeah. And if I could find a back road, I took that one. I slept out every night. And <laughs> I had this thing. I call it the, the tin Bible. It, it looked like a Bible. It looked like a little pocket Bible. You yeah. fold it over, open it. You put this little white fish oil cube in it and you light that and you cook your cup of noodles okay that was what i had for my cooking utensils one pot one little tiny stove and i had a what i call a nylon culvert for a tent just like a you can slide a sleeping bag in but keep it off the walls because they're right there beside you yeah yeah <laughs> it wasn't wasn't very attractive at all anyways <clears throat> i i took off i rode across uh, california which is california is just a scary state to ride a bike in um if you can imagine i don't know how many million people in the state of california but just imagine all of them been given a frontal lobotomy and that's how they drive uh, all to think about is the next stinking shopping mall they're going to get to they don't even notice somebody on a bicycle and it's it's a treacherous place but after you leave california once you hit nevada and from there to the east it was pretty easy going well a lot safer put it that way yeah. Um, when I got to the east, east of the Mississippi, I will, I've done it twice now. I, wow. I guarantee east of the Mississippi, what changes is, of course, you get a little up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, right? It's, it's like looking at a saw blade, you know, up and down, up and down, and that's what you're riding all day long. Yeah. But at top of every hill, it seems like everybody at the top of the hill owns eight dogs. And they all chase the hell out of you. <laughs> I, got, I, got, I got chased by dogs so dang many times east of the Mississippi and nothing west of the Mississippi. Never got chased at all. Got east of the Mississippi and there's coon hounds and everything you can think of chasing after you. So <laughs> finally make it over to uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And then my wife flies over and we had a weekend together. Uh, it was fun and came home. And then, I don't know, I think it was two years later, kind of another, no, it was probably more like five years later, kind of another dare, if you would. Oh, man, Dad, going across the USA is nothing. You should try the world. Well, at first, it's like, oh, don't be ridiculous. That's totally stupid. Well, the more I started reading about it, it intrigued me Yeah. to see if I could do it. Uh, I love traveling and we travel as much as we can afford to, or uh, nowadays as much as they will let you. Um, but anyways, I enjoy seeing uh, the artistry that's being done in other countries by other craftsmen. You know, I don't, I don't care if they're making brooms or making bits and spurs. It's interesting to me. Yeah. And the more rural a culture is, the more I tend to enjoy it. It's not like I don't enjoy, you know, my time when I get to be in Paris or London, for instance. But if I could pick a little town outside of Paris or a little town outside of London, it's probably more enjoyable to me. Yeah. Because I'm not into the Gucci handbags and all that kind of stuff. So I want to meet the guy that's making bagpipes and I want to meet the guy that's, you know, making uh, wicker baskets, whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. or willow baskets, I mean. Uh, so, when I travel, that's kind of what I like to go see if I'm 
going to stop in a little town. I'll ask somebody, is anybody around that does anything kind of artsy, craftsy, whatever, you know, like guitars or violins or whatever. And I try to go visit them if I can get a chance to. And like I said, trying to see if I can actually do it. So we tackled, I say we, because my son <clears throat> was, he'd done his third year of university in Grenoble, France. Uh, his, he took a degree in, in uh, international business. So third year, he worked on this exchange deal. He went to Grenoble, France. Well, when he found out he was going around the world, he called me like uh, literally like eight days before I was due to leave. Okay. And said, Hey, is there any chance I can go with you, ride with you until the fourth year starts? Right. And I said, Yeah, it'd been great if you had warned me ahead of time. I mean, he's six foot two. I don't have a bicycle for him. I don't have any panniers. I don't have a tent. I don't have, I mean, yeah. I've got to outfit another guy now. Right. So, which is fine. It's my kid. I'm going to do it. But would have been nice if you gave me nine days instead of eight, right? So we had to rush around, get the panniers, get it all set up, ready to go. And then he flew with me. We flew from LA over to China and we rode north out of China, up into Mongolia, Ulaanbaatar, and then to the west, straight across Mongolia. Uh, the town on the other side is called Bayanolgi. And then from there, you go north towards Tashkent, Russia. And then once you hit Tashkent and Novosibirsk, you can pretty much go straight to the west. Uh, you would literally, in a straight line, you come out about Kazan, Russia, and then you'd ride from there to, say, Kiev, Ukraine. Well, part of the cycling thing, uh, I went and taught in uh, Estonia for six weeks. And then my wife and family come over and my nephew come over and we all traveled around and done Russia, Lithuania, Finland, Estonia, uh, down into Poland and Germany. Okay. So <clears throat> we had just got home from that trip and I, it was in the spring. I went for a bike ride and I'm up the canyon behind me and I don't know, I'm seven or eight miles from the house. And I got lots of things to think of. It's a beautiful February, March day. So I pull over my bike and I park it there and I kind of lay down, if you will, on the grass on the side of the road that's green. At this point, there's no yellow star thistle sticking up your butt, so it's comfortable to lay there. And this bicycle goes by. <clears throat> this guy's wearing a, a track suit, right? Like you'd buy a, a Adidas kind of track suit. And he's got plastic bags and all kinds of crap tied on his bike and they're flapping in the wind and all that kind of stuff. And he goes past me while I'm laying there. And I'm just like, curiosity's got me. I got to see what this guy's all about, right? Another homeless moving into Kalinga. So I jump on my bike and <clears throat> I do my best Lance Armstrong, catch up to him in a quarter mile or half a mile. And I kind of surprise him. I ride up right behind him and I pat him on the back like that. When I come by him, I said, hey, dude, how you doing, right? And he speaks to me in Russian. Well, I had just got home from Russia. I'm not like I speak it, but I certainly have heard it enough. I know it's Russian. So we stop and we have a little visit. And he is a school teacher from Russia. So get talking to him and where is he going? And he's heading for Nevada and on his bicycle. He flew into San Francisco and he's going to go on a bike tour. <laughs> so I said, well, heck, 
come and stay with us. You can stay overnight and we can have a visit about this deal, right? So he does. Wow. So I mentioned, I mentioned that because when we get to Russia, one of our trips was to go visit this Russian guy. He stayed with us. So I'm going right. to go stay with him, right? Right. So Kazan, well, in the meantime, Russia decides to invade Ukraine. So there's a war going on. Ah, yes, so, I remember that. Going west out of Kazan into the Ukraine puts you right in the middle of where all of this stuff has taken place. I know I'm fairly fast on my bike. I just don't know if I can duck a mortar shell at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so I decide I'm going to go north to Moscow, turn around and come back down into Kiev. My son is still with me. <clears throat> so he wants to go to Kiev to see Maidan Square, where all the big riots were in the middle of the Kiev. We were actually so that's there. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Uh, yeah, my, father, go ahead. my father-in-law and I were actually there in Maidan about three weeks after all those riots. So we were, we were my oh, really? Yes, we probably walked down the same sidewalks, didn't have bricks to throw at each other. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, people won't believe you when you tell them that there are stacks of tires and kind of like barricades and they got old doors and they got stacks of literally they pulled up pavers off the street to throw at one another and throw at the police or the army or yeah. And you tell them, no, there's, there's guillotine wire or whatever they call that concertina wire everywhere. Yeah. Right. And uh, we took photographs of it and it was almost like the people here thought, nah, I don't know. You, you, it's kind of a make-believe thing. It, no, it's how it looked when we were there. I'm sure it's all cleaned up now. I'm going to find out. I got, I got to go back there on business. But anyways, so we rode to, my son rode with me down to uh, uh, Romania, Bucharest, Romania. And then he flew home to start fourth year. And then from there on, I was on my own. So I dipped down into Bulgaria uh, crossed over the Danube, I believe it is, into Bulgaria, made a big tour through Bulgaria and come up into um, Serbia. And then uh, Serbia to Bosnia, Herzegovina back into Bosnia, into Croatia. My wife came and met me in Zadar. I don't know if you've been to Zadar, Croatia, on uh, the, the Dalmatian coast. <clears throat> it's stunning. Uh, absolutely stunningly beautiful. The people are wonderful. And then uh, went over into Italy, crossed a, a ferry from Dubrovnik over to into Italy. And I rode, <laughs> I rode north uh, up to Florence. I'd been in Florence before and I love Florence. It's absolutely, for an art person, it's a fabulous place to be. So my brother, who also bought a bike, and he is a, I would describe him as a very competitive, tough cyclist. But you got to have a shower at the night. You got to have somewhere to wash your bike pants and you're not going to sleep in a tent. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> he he uh, actually made a long trip. He bought a bike after me, but he made the first long trip. He rode from Alberta down to El Paso at the Mexican border. Wow. And he did 17 days, okay? 100 plus miles every day. Wow. Stayed in a motel every night. 
had his meals arranged ahead of time at restaurants. His trucking company got it all arranged for him. I'm not saying it was easy. But one thing he said was, my God, Jim, I hated it. I never even lifted my head up to look around at the country I was going through. Never stopped and talked to one person. Yeah. Never seen, never went to a museum in a little town, right? Rode right through Springer and didn't go see the Billy the Kid Museum. I mean, yeah. uh, those kind of things. So when I went on my first bike trip, he said, man, don't do what I did. You, you pedal as far as you want to that day, and then you camp and carry on, okay? So I kind of took his advice. Well, when I started around the world, he said, hey, I'm going to come and meet you somewhere, and I'm going to do it with you. So, okay, okay. He had never been to Europe. I'd been there quite a few times by now. So we met in Florence, <clears throat> and he was all outfitted, bought a brand-new touring bike, panniers, everything, right? I helped him pull all the stickers that said it's for sale. I helped pull all that off so he didn't look like Maybell Carter or whatever her name was riding down the road with me. So four days, four days, he was done. Absolutely. Wasn't tired out. Just couldn't, couldn't live with the notion of sleeping in that tent at night, not having a shower. <clears throat> you know, on a warmer evening, you save one bottle of water to kind of pour over your head, and it's really – a very bad excuse for a bird bath, but there's a lot of nights you get done and it's way too cold to pour water over your head and get warm enough through the night. So you, you just don't do it. So I won't tell you what the sleeping bag smells like after two weeks, but it's not welcoming. Put it down. <laughs> so <clears throat> he told me the end of the first day, actually the morning after the first night in the tent, uh, the Italian coast, we're on the Ligurian coast, the, the, the northern coast of, of Italy, heading towards uh, France, okay? And it's lots and lots of people. Beautiful, but there's, there's people everywhere. So it's not like I, I, never, I never paid for a campground. I, I, I what they call wild camp. I find a, next to a culvert or I find over a rock wall, uh, hide in somebody's garden. I don't care but I'm not buying a campground. That was one of my rules, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I never bought a campground full time around the world, not once. <laughs> I did get motel rooms, then, but I wild camped. And if I wasn't in a motel room, I wild camped. So my brother just couldn't handle that. So on the morning, the second morning, he said, I'm done. I'm, I don't know where I'm going to fly home from, but I'm flying home. I said, okay. So we rode for four days. He ended up flying home from, uh, uh, it's on the southern coast of France. Uh, just after you cross out of Genoa, not Genoa, not Geneva. I'll think of the name of it. Anyways, the first town when you get inside of France, big enough to have an airport, and yeah. you flew home from there. <clears throat> so then I finished off the rest of it, went over all the way across the south. There is a really good saddle maker. If you're ever in France, there's, there's two really good ones. Uh, Yves Lassier. I went and visit, visited with Yves, and he's in Mont, just north of Montpellier, France. Uh, and then the second guy I went to visit with is uh, George and Natalie uh, Braille. And they're, um, oh, kind of north of Montpellier, a little bit to the west. So I went and stopped through there. And I had, uh, I had been over to George and Natalie's two years earlier, and I spent 10 days teaching tree making. So one of the guys, we call him the mad professor, he lived in uh, Bayonne, France. And he said, hey, if you ever, if you ever come through uh, France on your bicycle, 
make sure you come to visit me. I said, okay, okay. So anyways, I stopped in Bayonne for three days. I spent it with my uh, mad professor friend. Uh, and then I went north out of there, up through what they call uh, Basque country, okay, the northern coast of Spain. Yeah. And angled down in through Spain and across into Portugal, ended up in Lisbon. And my wife and family come over and we got together in Lisbon for uh, Christmas. And then we, my son, when he was going to school in France, he spent one week in Morocco. Uh, he said, Dad, you would really love Morocco if you ever got there. We're so close. We should fly over there. I said, okay. So we had New Year's in Morocco. Wow. And then all came back to Lisbon. And they flew to uh, L.A. and drove home. Excuse me. And I flew to uh, South Carolina and started off there and started in Charleston and rode across. Now it's January, so I rode across the south. I really didn't hit any really challenging cold weather uh, until I got into New Mexico, kind of between Vaughn and, say, Sholo, Arizona. I stayed in the, kind of the back roads through there. Yeah. And it was pretty cold, but certainly doable. And then made it home in, I don't know, middle of March sometime. So I was about just about 11 months uh, on that trip. Wow. And my wife held, my wife held down the fort. <clears throat> but I think I was actually, we got stuck at the Russian border trying to get out of Mongolia into Russia. And we got stuck uh, in Bayan Olgi, living in a yurt, which if anybody describes to you is next to paradise, then the paradise might be next to the outhouse is the way I see it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I think that's where you and I actually first talked a little bit uh, over Instagram was, was in that eight days when we were stuck there in Bayanolvia. In my memory, that's where it goes back to. But uh, anyways, yes, the cycling is certainly a part of my life now. Yes. Wow. What a, what a, yeah. what a, an amazing adventure. It's, uh, there's so many stories and I know you've given me the short version. It's, it's just amazing to, um, I mean, just to have bit the bullet and, and done those sort of things. How long did it take you to do the, the, uh, your first one across the States? Uh, 71 days. Yeah. Which is not, uh, if you put a calculator to it is not, uh, difficult to do. No, literally anybody could do it. Um, but it's, you know, people the, say, well, yeah, how good a shape do you have to be in? You know what I would tell people? You know what? Leave in the worst shape in the world. In two weeks, you'll not believe what you look like. Really. Uh, if the goal is just to be determined enough to get to the other coast or wherever you're going, yeah. just leave in whatever shape you're in, right? Yeah. And you will ride into fitness. If you only go 20 miles that first day, whatever. If you only go 20 miles any one of the days, you're fine. Because yeah. then two weeks later, you'll feel so good, you'll do 135 miles. So I think my average, literally you will average on any one of these trips I've done 
across USA, around the world. Then I went and done uh, from the north end of Norway down to Istanbul, which was a fabulous trip. My last one was all around the British Isles. So you do England, Ireland, Scotland, Isle of Man, uh, which is a, a lot of, actually it was some of the toughest cycling I have done. Right. The Alps are way, way the wet Alps are way, way taller. Yeah. Uh, you know, our Rockies are way taller. But somehow, by miracle, in Scotland, they can take a 600-foot hill and put it up 24%. <laughs> Even a goat is afraid to walk up this thing. <laughs> and there's always, always a 90-degree corner and a rock wall at the bottom, so you get no speed. You're just dead in the water with a fully loaded bike chugging up this 24% grade. They do it over and over and over and over again. Wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. Anyways, all every one of them, I haven't met. I know I have probably rubbed shoulders with a dirty, rotten, evil mass murderer, right? Walking just in a crowd. But honestly, when you show up on a bicycle, the first uh, feeling they have towards you is empathy. The only way life, the only way life could be worse is if you're walking, right? <laughs> My God, you're on a bicycle, and they want to feed you, or they want to give you something to drink, or they want to bring, give you a loaf of bread, or it, I mean, everywhere I went was. I know we had different faiths. That never seemed to be really a big problem. I'm a Christian, and they're a Muslim. It didn't seem to come into play. Um, you know, you you see somebody on the side of the road broke down. I. I I told my wife this story. I was pedaling through Bulgaria, and it's it's a poverty-stricken outfit, right? Uh, I think the GDP in, in Bulgaria is like $2,100 per person. You know, we come from a community in America where we're sixty-eight or 9000 GDP per person. So we can't, we can't even relate to it. Yeah. <clears throat> the guy that lives under the bridge here in California, he chose to live under the bridge here in California. Nine times out of ten. The guy that lives under the bridge in Bulgaria, he has no other option, none. And those are the kind of people you meet. I'm pedaling down the road one day, and it's kind of a wet, weedy place, and there's these great big weeds on the side of the road, and there's this car pulled over, almost falling over on the side of the road. <laughs> there's this guy out there, <clears throat> not in very good shape, not very big, definitely a gypsy, okay? So I had one hand on my wallet, and one hand to help him. That's how you are with a gypsy. Yeah. Sorry, but that's just the way you have to be. So anyways, he, we're sign languaging back and forth. I don't speak Bulgarian and his English is bad, so bad he couldn't order a hamburger. So we're sign languaging back and forth. His front wheel had fell off of his car because he only had one, <laughs> one, one lug nut on his <laughs> tire. <laughs> so anyways, here he is stuck. <clears throat> there's four lug nuts on the wheel on this side. And I think there was four on this side and there was three on this one on, on the back corner. So <clears throat> we got to figure out how to get this car up and get a wheel on. He's got a wheel and uh, it's not flat. So I said, look, it, I'll lift it. You put it on. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger, but on that day, God gave me enough strength to get the car high enough. He could get a wheel on. Right. So his, his question was, how am I going to, how am I going to drive it? Nothing to hold it on. I said, well, you got a lug nut, but one, right? So we go over there one, 
one of his wheels had four, so we took one lug nut off, right? And spaced them out so he had three. <laughs> now this one's got two. <laughs> but it's better than one. So anyway, <clears throat> I, he gives me a big kiss, literally a big kiss on the lips, like I was his great aunt Agnes or something, right? It's <laughs> in the town, and it's like seven or eight miles away. So I don't, I'm not thinking any more about it. So I pedal into this little town in Bulgaria and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I've got to find my way through this little town and I don't want to take the wrong road. So I'm kind of more paying attention to my cell phone now, trying to figure out what route I'm going to take to get through this town. <laughs> I'm pulled over, kind of standing at a, a corner of the street. <clears throat> There's a stop sign, four stop signs. Nobody's looking at stop signs, but there are four stop signs. <laughs> and this car goes, goes through in front of me and goes whizzing by and he says, Hey, cowboy!" And he rolls his car around to that side and just parks in the middle of the street and gets his wife out, <laughs> comes running over and gives me another big kiss on the lips and then gets his wife up there and gives me a big kiss on the lips. <laughs> kind of everywhere over there. It's, uh, yeah, it's a hard, hard not to enjoy cycling over there. Everybody's so friendly and, yeah, uh, that's at least the way I have found it to be. Yeah, I, I've had two scary opportunities when I'm cycling, and I'm sad to say both of them were in USA. I'm really, I'm actually embarrassed to say it because you know everybody who hasn't been overseas would think, oh man, Serbia had to be pretty treacherous or Bosnia had to be, and it was, I'm sure, Iran. I'm sure, like I said, I rub shoulders with an axe murderer, but I just didn't have any experience. But I had two very negative chances for things to happen here in USA, in, in the backcountry, uh, okay. cycling, little, little towns. Yeah. So you might be safer to go cycle in Bulgaria than parts of Missouri or Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> I can believe it. Though I mean it, it is unfortunate to say, but yeah, I can believe that. Yeah, but all in all, you know, that traveling to Europe, what it does for me is I get to go to museums and see stuff that just you have to wonder how how did they make it? There was no engineering, no CAD programs, no light. You know, they didn't have electricity when they built this thing, or whatever it might be. Uh, I remember going through the Hermitage in, in uh, uh, St. Petersburg, looking at a bit that is dated, and you can actually go to Italy. You know, they, uh, the metalsmiths, they're part of a guild, and they have a mark, and you have to use that mark on your armor or whatever you're building, and it, it tells the bureaucrats, you know, who built this sword or who built this whatever, a piece of armor. This is a bit that has all the attributes of a Bobby Avila Rainer bit, but this was built in 1495. And I'm thinking, what the heck? I thought we invented this moving Billy Allen mouthpiece. <laughs> this is long before Billy Allen was even born. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, those little contradictions, there's lots of them when you get looking around. It, there sure is. We, in, we, in, I, I love we invented this. And, no, we didn't invent that. Yeah. Nothing new under the sun. I love the history as well. Um, and going to museums yeah. and seeing how different cultures or different uh, people's histories have developed and 
and uh, gone over uh, throughout the centuries. Have you, if you ever make it down to New Zealand, you'll have to come look us up. I would love to. My, my wife and daughter have been there twice. Uh, I didn't get to go. Uh, I'm sure you know Warren's daughter, um, not Lana, that's his wife. I can't remember the daughter's name now. Uh, anyways, when she got married, she wanted my daughter in Nevada to be her flower girl. <clears throat> so they went over to be the flower girl. And then I think when Nevada was six, she went over again and, and mom went with her. Uh, when that daughter, Leah, maybe, I think it's Leah, uh, when she had her first baby. So they've been there twice. I haven't been there yet. Oh, well. But I will, I will make it someday. Yeah, definitely. Well, Jeremiah, we could, I think I could listen to you tell more stories uh, for a good long time yet, but I know it's getting late over there. Um, and I would like to wrap up with one question that I like to try to ask everybody. And, and just thinking back over your stories and, and the adventure that God's had you on for uh, your lifetime, it's just, it's just so cool. I just really, really appreciate your, your time and telling me a little bit about what you've done and, and the places you've been and, and how things have developed. It's, I really, uh, one thing that, that struck me was the way you've innovated what you're doing uh, and going from, as a craftsman, from doing custom orders and stuff like that. But it's unique in and of itself, just I think to be doing bits and spurs and saddles, that's kind of a unique blend in, in the Western industry. But then to have innovated the way you have and, and um, like you said before, towing that line between the, the custom and the commercialized side of things. Um, just amazing innovation and being able to pivot and, and make, make it work for yourself and your employees and their families and that sort of a thing. If you, if you could um, sort of summarize it, what would you say is your legacy that you're wanting to leave? What are you working on? What's the big picture? My kids. I've said, yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> my, my kids are super important. My, my family, not just my kids, my wife. Um, now, I might not have answered it that way prior to finding Christ. I, I know I wouldn't have. At that point, I would have said, I want the world to know I'm the best saddle maker, or I want the world to know I'm the best something. It would have been something uh, me, self-centered, like <clears throat> I, I still am proud of the saddles I make. And yes, I, I, I'm not going to say they're the best. I'm certainly proud of them. I, I think they're well-made, all that kind of stuff. I'm certainly proud of all of the handmade bits I made, as well as the production line stuff we built, Okay. It has to satisfy me first. And you, you ask, what would I tell somebody? Well, I'm assuming we're talking to young, maybe would-be makers here. Um, I am all about tradition, but they will be writing books about our traditions. And we will have lost all those traditions that came 100 years before that and 100 years before that. So at what point do you want to stop and call the tradition, okay? Right. So 
<clears throat> the reason I say that, we should, if we're going to do something, we should aspire to do it well. I think God tells us that in the Bible, right? Uh, don't just be a slave, be the best slave, even a slave. So when you tackle something, you should tackle doing it to the best of your ability and get as good at it as you can. I am a capitalist with a capital C. So, and I, I say that, I, I see you laughing. I don't mean it. Uh, in today's world, it could be taken as a negative. So when I say that, even when I was making a bit on a custom basis, I was paying attention to where I spent my time making it. And how could I make it? In the end, I'm going to take this bit or saddle or spurs. I'm going to hand it to my customer. He is going to pass judgment on what kind of a person and what kind of a craftsman is Jeremiah Watt, right? So I, I want to hand over the best product I can. But then when he leaves, my house is always, um, it is always ran entirely from the moment we left the saddle shop in Calgary, every nickel of income derived from what I could do with my hands. It's not my wife has a university degree. I could make more money sending her to town and doing whatever. But as I jokingly have said, she's not a woman who's comfortable in pantyhose. And to do a lot of those things requires her to go in places or do things she's not really that excited about doing. She yeah. likes being out here, just like I am, yeah. with Dutch ovens and cows and all that kind of stuff. So our income has been derived from what I could produce. When I say I'm a capitalist, I have to look at everything I do and say, do I make any money out of it, right? It's not a dirty word at my house. I have to have income. I would invite young people to be open-minded about being in business, being in business can look like a lot of things. I got in thinking I was going to be a custom saddle maker. I, I still make custom saddles. I wasn't expecting to make saddle trees. I wasn't expecting to make hardware. I certainly wasn't expecting to make tools. Yeah. <laughs> so you see what I mean? Yeah. <clears throat> I'm comfortable with it now. Along the way, my, my transition or my step in different directions offended some of my friends I still have them as friends. We managed to work our way through it, coming to agreement, hey, this is what had to happen here. I guess my legacy is I have been here, made it nice, and I have tried at every opportunity to hand it back. We, if we look at what we do as a dying trade, it's because you kept that secret that you should have handed over. And I would say to people, be open, sharing, learning every day. I think it comes back tenfold. <laughs> Other people think, oh, man, if I give away that one, that one secret, I'll never have another one. <laughs> I don't look at life that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So today, yeah, giving back is far more important than... Uh, accolades uh, nobody nobody is offended by 
having an earnest pat on the back saying, dang, you've done a nice job on that one, Jeremiah. Don't, don't get me wrong. Everybody needs some of that to go on to the next day. You really do. But in the end, seeing somebody younger flourish because you offered one little piece of advice is way more beneficial than, you know, a big blue ribbon on the wall, at least for me. Everybody's different. But for me, you ask what makes me, uh, I think sharing, doing nice work, but sharing what I, what I have done, how I've done it. Uh, And I, I love being in a situation where you are teaching and your student actually shows you something that you had never thought of. I have been in that several times. Anybody who has taught, I think it would be impossible to say that you haven't been confronted with that very scenario. Yeah. And it's, it's an accident maybe on their, on the student's part, but what they had to say actually solved one of those little life riddles that you have carried around I'm not saying you expressly. I'm just saying yeah. <laughs> I've seen it myself. Yeah, right? you bet. How will you better? And the kid just figures it out, like because he has no. There's no roadblocks to what you can and can't do. He doesn't know nothing, right? Yeah. So yeah. every idea is possible, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. You know, and I I totally agree with with your perspective there. Looking at the big picture and passing on uh, knowledge or experience yeah. or um, I think that that whole idea of, of being mentored, whether it's with horses or with craftsmanship and making gear or whatever it is, you know, there's people that have gone before us in most all of these things. And, and uh, the lessons learned and the um, processes they've gone through, it's, it's just invaluable if they can hand that off and hand that on to the next generation. It's going to keep these things alive. Yes, it does. It, it doesn't only keep it alive, but it, it speeds up the process of, of an interested young student producing beautiful work, whether it be bits, spurs, or you know, being a better horseman. You're involved in the whole education side as well. Absolutely. So you see it. You think of the pitfalls that you have stepped into, blundered into, uh, however you arrived at them, and how long it took to solve it and get on to something better right and when you can help a young person uh i mean it just it's it's gratifying it it absolutely is it absolutely is um just before we wrap up here sir would you like to share where people can find out more about you if you have your website and and your social media handles and where people can can uh check out what you're up to and and find out more about what you do as a capitalist would say, for shopping, go to www.ranch2arena.com. Uh, and I have been told it's a relatively easy website to uh, navigate through. And that's where uh, everything is, literally, all the hardware bits and spurs and all that kind of stuff. I am on Facebook, at least right now. Uh, I do have a very strong political side. I try to not share it on my commercial page, uh, which is Jeremiah Watt Products. And I have a personal page, Jeremiah Watt. And we have a also on Facebook a group uh, where we try to share you know, new hardware and how we're using it. And that's called Ranch to Arena. 
Uh, it's a group there. I am on YouTube. We have just started, well, I say just started, maybe in the last three years, I guess, uh, putting up some videos. I'm not real regular at it, uh, but there are videos up there about things we're doing in the shop. And I'm on Instagram, uh, at Jeremiah Watt on Instagram. And if you can't find me there, look for a fat guy with rubber pants on a bicycle. <laughs> and that could be anywhere. Anywhere, yes. Be kind to cyclists. That's my last word for you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Jeremiah, thank you again so much for taking the time to visit with me. And I tell you, next time we're in the States, we might have to come look you guys up because uh, it, it would just... You know, do that. I do that. We, we live in a humble place, but you're certainly more than welcome. And I, I have to apologize a little bit. We really didn't get to touch on the making of anything very much. We kind of talked and rambled on about where I went, and what I've done, but um, I apologize. And well, that's okay. We, we, we might have to do this again. Okay. Well, whatever. I just want to say thank you. I really appreciate what you're doing out there in the horse industry. It is badly needed. Uh, this is just a PS. We really need to drive home the concept of good horse confirmation because I think it is being lost, forgotten, or overlooked. Uh, I say that as a saddle maker. Uh, I, I, I see some things out there going on I think are not good or healthy for the horse industry. But anyways, I won't tell you how to do your deal, but certainly when you get back to America, whenever that might be, come on through for a visit. You and the crew and the clan, you're all welcome. And we'll at least barbecue a couple of gophers and get on with it. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Thank you so much. Well, that's all from us today. Thank you for listening to American Cowboy in New Zealand. If you like this episode, please share and leave your five-star rating or review. Remember, you can find us on social media or our website, truewesthorsemanship.com.